You are listening to Secret Handshake, the podcast covering the movies that help you identify your friends and maybe make a few more along the way. Coming up, spine number 42, 2001's In the Bedroom and the Films of Todd Field. Featuring Tom Wilkinson, Sissy Spacek, Marissa Tomei, Kate Winslet, Jennifer Connelly, Patrick Wilson, Jackie Earl Haley, Kate Blanchett, Nina Haas, Noemi Marlant, and Mark Strong's weird fucking hair. Martin. Yes. There are things of which I may not speak. There are dreams that cannot die. There are thoughts that make the strong heart weak and bring a pallor to the cheek and a mist before the eye. And the words of that fatal song come over me like a chill. A boy's will is the wind's will. And the thoughts of youth are long, long thoughts. of Secret Handshake. I'm your host, Jacob Knight. Joining me as always is Martin Carlson. Martin, I talked to all the homies and they fucking hate Lydia Tarr. We all fucking hate Lydia Tarr. How do you feel about Lydia Tarr? I mean, she's a bad person. <laughs> it's pretty It's pretty clear. Um, this is a real, real laugh riot of three films. Just some real crowd pleasers. And if you guys haven't picked up yet, we're doing the films of Todd Field, which... The long filmography. The the (laughs) massive filmography of three from Todd Field in in 21 years, which is pretty remarkable. And I guess we should probably start there, um, because In the Bedroom is going to be the featured movie of this, which was a huge... I've brought this up on the, the podcast before, but was a huge... Uh, part of my late high school film going career, let's say it's one of the movies that really made me fall in love with movies at kind of the tail end of the Weinstein Miramax era. I think it might, I, I think there's debate that you could say this might be one of their last, like, truly mm. great, iconic movies because it not only like got five Academy Award nominations, including Best Picture, but also made like five. 44 million at the box office was like a huge like hit internationally. Mm-hmm. And even on like it's Wikipedia page, it says it's one of the highest grossing ratio films 
where it made like 25 to one of its budget. Some like insane to where you're like, I don't fucking care about any of this, but it was a big ass movie at its time that also feels kind of forgotten 21 years later. If Todd field hadn't come back after 2006's little children and his 16 fucking year hiatus to make tar, which is now arguably to this point, the most acclaimed movie of the year. Like, definitely one of the front runners for Oscar right now. Oh, yeah. Well, I mean, the timing helps, too. You know? Sure. I mean, but it, it, it did very well with the festival circuit, international festival circuit over the summer, um, and in the States and in Toronto, I think, too. Um, so I've been hearing about it for a while. And Todd Field, to me, is not as formative, but I've, I've seen and really liked... Um, Todd Field literally became the guy, even on Twitter, where people would be like, what director do you think isn't considered should direct like a Marvel movie? And I would jokingly respond with Todd Field. Just shut the room down. Just to like, I just wanted him to come back because I knew for 16 years, you know, from 2006 until now, he had multiple projects in gestation. He worked in TV, like he uh, directed a couple episodes of Carnival for HBO. Mm -hmm. And um, he had some writing gigs that he was trying to get up and running, but it just never happened. And that's kind of where I was going with that. That's the place to kind of start is that he began as an actor famously in Stanley Kubrick's final film, Mm -hmm. Eyes Wide Shut, as Nick Nightingale, the piano player. And also from another scene that we've brought up on uh, other secret handshake episodes in sleep with me where he shares the famous top gun monologue with Quentin Tarantino. You know, he's the guy that Tarantino is telling the, the top gun is gay monologue too. Um, but he always said, even in interviews, like he always wanted to be a filmmaker. Like he didn't really want to be in acting. That was just kind of a means to an end. And then, you know, he makes two movies in 2001, 2006, and then he kind of disappears. And a lot of people have almost assigned, like this Malikian mystery to him to where he became the Terrence Malick of our generation. But that's not exactly true. Yeah. He had so many projects in the works and literally I can't believe I have not brought this up with you before, but I got to meet him. um, What? In 2008. So um, he came to Emory. So my my first year of grad school, um, A.O. Scott and, Todd Field came together for a conversation. Fuck you. You've never told me this story, and this is ridiculous. Yeah, I literally was just sitting here, and it just like popped out of my subconscious, because I remember it quite well. But So I was for my first year. Only one of the best directors of his generation, but sure, go on. <laughs> well, in the week before, I got to meet Philip Glass, so it was just a really cool... Like, Jesus. It was, it was a, Emory was one of those places with a, a lot of money, and I was like having a super anxious time in grad school, but I was also reaping the benefits of just seeing ridiculous shit like this. Though to be fair to Emery for a long period, really like in the years that I went to college and then shortly after, which would have been my grad school years had I actually chosen to go to grad school. Emery was like one of those weird sleeper film programs Mm -hmm. that like everybody would talk about like NYU or USC and stuff. But like Emery was like one of the big, you went to those two schools to make movies and Emery was a big like theory. Yeah. So the head of the department was Dr. Matthew Bernstein. He was like, he's pretty big in in the film history uh, world. He's written like a lot of classic Hollywood. He wrote a book about, um, like Walter Wanger, the, editor, the 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 producer, he did a thing about the Leah Frank case, which was very popular. Um, but anyway, very was it, popular is that what we're in, going with in the 
in the academic <laughs> in the in the academic sphere of, of film, which in, in the cloistered communities that we're about to discuss, that was very popular. I mean, well, that's yes, the irony is I you know a lot of these things remind me of being in grad school and academia, but um, uh, I was a I was in um, a TA for a film production class, and so. I could. This is one of the biggest mistakes in my life. So I wanted to be a film critic at this time. So I had a choice. I could go to... We're recording. You uh, should know this, right? Yeah. Is that okay? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, and I could go to one session with A.O. Scott and one session with Todd Field. I had to choose. And at that point, I wanted to be a critic. So I was like, I want to be A.O. Scott. And he was like my idol. And he's an amazing critic. And I met him and he, yeah. was, he was super fucking cool. And then my film, my film class that I TA'd for that I didn't go to, Todd Field taught about directing to all these undergrads. Oh, and then that night, though, everyone got together, this huge, almost like campus-wide thing where A.O. Scott interviewed Todd Field. And I bring it up because he was really getting into all the things he had on the table. Because we're only talking about a year and a half after Little Children came out in the theaters, right? So he he was, Blood Meridian was top of the list. Yeah. His Cormac McCarthy adaptation. And that had been floating around, I think, even before Little Children. There was another one that was there, and I might butcher the title, but it was something like The Act of Killing... Something like that. Yeah, he had a he had a screenplay that was floating around and even got close to green lit for a while. That was like the next big thing. But I think that when that fell through, that's when he was jobbing at like HBO doing like Carnival episodes. Yeah, and it, it is one of those things like, you know, we talk about, you said Malik and, you know, Malik was in France and he was ghostwriting scripts and he was like kind of living a recluse's life. Thoughtfield was trying to get shit made. Like, he was out there, like, kind of pounding the bricks. And it wasn't that, like... He wasn't teaching or guest teaching at MIT. No, and and he was a very... I remember watching the interview, and it was, like, two really smart guys. And he's very approachable and cool and, like, very matter-of-fact about his filmmaking. Um, I wish I could go back and remember everything. But it's just funny I didn't remember until until this moment that I saw that. Well, the I'm other sorry thing to make you jealous, but... Is that he works for his own commercial... Uh, production company Mm -hmm. is that he just directs commercials. That's how he puts bread on the table and he does do mercenary uh, screenwriting jobs for hire, you know? So it's like he did this really good interview on the big picture with Sean Fennessy to where he went into that to where like, you know, Sean Fennessy just point blank asked him was like, Oh, what did you do for 16 years? He's like, I worked like, I was just kind of around, like I shot commercials. I did writing gigs. I did this. And he's like, I, you know, the reason that I haven't had a movie in 16 years is that I kept trying to get them made and the studios would be like, Nope, not going to make that. And I mean, it makes sense because again, he came at the end of the, the Weinstein era. Like when I watch in the bedroom, like to me, that's peak late Miramax. Like let, yeah. let's say, what's the English patient? 96, 97. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So like you reach the English patient 96 and they really start producing a particular type of awards bait movies, you know? And actually it would probably be before English patient because isn't Shakespeare in love the year before that? It's after. So uh, Shakespeare in love was 98. It was the same year. Okay. I always forget what years or what. Yeah. But like, yeah. So like from English patient through Shakespeare in love all the way up to where I would say like in the bedroom might be one of the last ones before Miramax really gets sold off to Disney. And then they go off and do the Weinstein company together. Like this is one of the peaks of Miramax in my head, because it gets, you know, a best picture nomination, 
best actor, best actress, best screenplay doesn't win any of them, but it was clear that this was like one of their big candidates that they were, you know, Harvey Weinstein was going to push through, through all of his dirty by any means necessary kind of tactics, but you also watch it. And it's like, I've said this before in the podcast and I always want to like hesitate towards how I phrase it is that Harvey Weinstein enabled a certain type of movie that we're now sort of nostalgic for. Yeah. Um, in that, like we look back on stuff like the English patient and Shakespeare in love and in the bedroom and like in the moment, you know, they were on fucking Seinfeld and shit, making fun of the, the English patient. Yeah. And Schindler's know, for how list. long yeah. it is. And, <laughs> yeah. and Schindler, and Schindler's list. Exactly. You were necking during Schindler's list. Yeah. Well, what I, a list. <laughs> You remember the whole thing with like Elaine and her boss with, with the English patient. Oh, like, yeah. have you, you haven't seen it yet. My God, it's rapturous. <laughs> and it's like, but they did, they had like the cultural zeitgeist and kind of like a chokehold in the, the art house cinema department, you know? So it's like, we don't get those now though. And you understand why we haven't received a Todd field movie in 16 years, because like, even for like Netflix and shit, the majority of those executives are going to look at it and be like, are there gay cowboys in it? Are there like, what, what are we doing here? Like with Scorsese, like you, you watch like the Netflix things, you watch Irishman, which are kind of like yeah. Irishman, Roma, um, Roma, uh, uh, power of the dog is another big one from Jane Campion is that you watch it and you go, they fit almost like the next generation of that like Weinstein mold, yeah. but they're all doing a very specific aging auteurist thing. Like we already know Alfonso Cuaron from both his Mexican movies, like Itumama Tambien, and then also from him making fucking Harry Potter movies and yeah. stuff. It's like, we know what to expect from him. You, you watch the Irishman and you go, well, only one person could have directed this. Jane Campion, kind of same thing with power of the dog yeah, and power of the dog is sort yeah. of like the, 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 the apex of the, the new wave, like Netflix prestige movie, because it's like, it literally is gay cowboys eating pudding from Jane Campion. So it's like, even then you couldn't see Todd field. Like maybe he could work that in with like the, the mysterious kind of background of like, Oh, I haven't made a movie in 16 years since these last two very critically lauded uh, pieces of cinema. But like, I can't imagine Netflix looking at tar and being like, yeah, sure. Do it. It seems like more trouble than it's worth for them that it doesn't, like you're saying, have an indie pitch. You know, you're saying like, oh, this is like this filmmaker who we had expectations from. And for me, Power of the Dog felt very like the like the piano as well. Like that very, we should, you know, a lot of her stuff is lush, but very lush. Um, and with like, you know, gender, politics and sexuality, it's all there. And so like, cool. And, and it's big and it has a role for someone like Benedict Cumberbatch to do his thing. And while Tar has that oh, and too, Kirsten Dunst too, and Kirsten Dunst, you know, and and Tar has, you know, a a performance of a lifetime. I, I I'm being hyperbolic, but it's true. I mean, Kate Blanchett is a yeah. next, is this is something we're going to talk about for a long time. Um, it's but it's a film that gets into some subjects that are I think uncomfortable for a lot of studios and a lot of people. Like it, and it looks at them in a really gray area. Um, similar to what he does with Jackie Earl Haley and Little Children, where you have one of your main characters is a pedophile, and the it, most sympathetic the character most, in the whole movie, the most sympathetic, and it doesn't say, "Hey, 
it does it in such a way where he balances like, okay, this guy is, is horrible and he should not be around children, but also like he, they put him in the theme of human beings following their basis desires, right? Following their animalistic desires and, and breaking their civilized shell, you know, and the way that he mixes that together. And a lot of filmmakers couldn't make that work. He does. And I think Tar very similarly too is like, it's talking about cancel culture. Like that is the kind of overarching theme. One of the big themes of that film. And if cancel culture is real or not, that's a whole other conversation, but it's getting into that, those politics as well. I want to save this and I'm just going to incept this thought into your brain for the actual tar segment after this. Um, But is tar about cancel culture or is it about me too? Because I think they're two separate things that do slightly overlap. But okay, the more yeah. I think about the movie, I think it's less about cancel culture and more about sexual impropriety. Yeah, that's fair. You I'll know, think about that. Think about yeah, it. Yeah, yeah. Stew on Stew it. Stew on you know, that. Let it kind of just dig its way into your brain. Yeah, but either way, I mean, we'll get to that later. But it is, you know, he, he does films, all three, that don't kind of, especially as you, you know, with 06 and then with this one in 20, you know 2022, like you were saying, they don't they don't fit the mold of an easily, and on one on one spectrum you have one end you have like Green Book, right, which is like emotional drama that is like for Peoria, that you know it, it, it is for middle of the road America to feel good about. It's simple. There's no complexity to it at all, and I think this is further to the other end of the spectrum of a difficult drama that is uncomfortable. Um, well, I think one of the things that really unifies Todd Field's movies is that how they're so morally gray and ambiguous about both judging their characters and the actions that they kind of take and also really what happens after that. Like, because Tar, the fi- the coda of Tar might be like peak Todd Field oh, it's so because good. it makes you sit there and witness this person after they've been canceled more or less find a new love for their art and a new audience to bring it to. And it ends on that weird note to where it's almost like, what does this mean? Like, what does this mean to you? Like tar really is a Rorschach test of sorts to where you can hold it up. And like, I remember having the thought about it being almost like the art house equivalent of like fight club to where like all the douchey <laughs> bros are going to go out and form fight clubs and not realize that the whole movie's about like homosexuality and nonconformity yeah. and like the way nonconformity destroy- is conformity. Exactly. Yeah. And how we destroy our lives and yada, yada, yada consumerism. Like people are going to watch tar and be like, like you could totally imagine like, Fox News types embracing Tar and being like, it's about like this woman who is unjustly canceled by the the woke liberal media and how she finds strength in the end. And it's like, no, that's not what that movie is fucking about. You're crazy. Yeah, no, it, it definitely. Well, I read some reviews that were very critical of it because they Richard Brody notably is it went on that long tirade in, in the New York. Oh, that's right. I think about that, how regressive it is in politics and style. Yeah, I think that was one of the ones where it was talking specifically about we'll get to the, the best scene of the movie, which is a Juilliard. That's um, the most it's the best scene in the movie and it's the most, let's say, contentious with people. Because they're talking about stuff. Like they're really talking about the thing. Oh like, yeah. They're talking about the core of like, you know, and the movie would say like wokeism versus like like rationalism maybe I'm not sure how to 
the well, other again, side of that. Well, again, it's the Rorschach test yeah. element of it. What are you bringing to the movie? Yeah, what are you bringing to it? And also, what are you taking away from it? Who are you siding with? And, and like in those moments, like who's going too far? But let's stop with the tar talk there. And <laughs> I'm let's excited to get into to, that. Oh, me too. Because <laughs> I mean, like this is a movie that warrants discussion. It's a movie that literally is built to provoke you, to confront you with these pieces of our times and say like, what do you think about them? And also like, what do you see here? Because, and, and I'll use that as a jumping off point to get back to in the bedroom is one of the great things about Todd Field's movies is that his movies are as much about inaction as they are about action in themselves because in the bedroom for the first 40 minutes is literally spent watching this affair brew between this young college kid, Nick Stahl, and then Marissa Tomei as this separated mother of two who might be like a little lower class. Yeah. Because uh, like Field also like is really into kind of the, the classist divides that uh, are kind of exist within these little communities, let's say. But it's brewing and the whole time we're in this community, this this north eastern new england yeah. like full fishing on maine fishing like village full yeah. on maine uh like you have to seek this village out let's say if you ever want to go there and, and none of these people are ever leaving like that's one of the big things about nick stall's character is that like you can see his parents being like you know we've done well for ourselves like his his mo- mother is a, a composer for like weird latvian like folk music at is that what she's teaching at she, the high school because she, she did her doctorate in it yeah she's well she's a high school teacher it's summer which i want to get put a bookmark on summer i want to talk about that because it's theme. like a summer romance it's a summer yeah. romance and it's a summer movie in a weird way um it but yeah she i believe is the high school choir director but she like her son has like higher aspirations. Like she has a PhD, like she's a lot more. And she did her research on, like you said, like on like the, in the Balkans about, about, um, I couldn't remember that it is some like Eastern European, like folk yeah. music, but she's teaching and, it at the high school. That's one of the weird like wrinkles in it too, because that choir singing, like, music that you wouldn't normally hear in like, let's say, a main choir. Yeah, it's a, it's a summer program. And so I think the whole idea is like, well, I'm going to do something special with my background to teach you girls who have no expertise in this. And it's this, that's, it's it, again, the whole thing is about, I think what happens in summers, right? It's like this break and you have specifically Nick Stahl's character who is, you know, on break, getting ready to decide if and when he wants to go to school, take a year off. Cause um, he wants to be an architect. Wants to be an architect, but it's the kind of classic, do I stay home? You know, I have, I like, I like this girl. Obviously, she's to me. She's gorgeous. What do they call he, them? May to September romances. Yeah. Or, oh uh, yeah. Um, there's a term for it. Yeah. But I'm like in the ballpark and, and very much that where, you know, you have, and the first 40 minutes are very, very interesting because they're it, fun. It's funny. It is this idyllic. Like I wouldn't mind hanging out in this main town for like a summer and like fishing and just like eating seafood at night and going to going to going to like fucking barbecues and like going to watch baseball games. The whole thing is so idyllic. Yeah, it's like we're gonna watch the Red Stock Sox. We're gonna eat fucking lobster rolls. We're gonna have like 
uh, barbecues in the backyard with our little community. My dad, Tom Wilkinson, is the local doctor, and we live in this fucking awesome, like... Edward Hopper house. Yeah, like gothic, <laughs> like New England, almost... Ma- I don't want to say mansion, but it's a huge home. Like, obviously, his parents do very, very well yeah. for themselves. His dad's like the doctor. Yeah, of the yeah, town. Like but the, that's, yeah. like, he's almost like Lewis Creed in Pet Cemetery mm-hmm. when his son dies. So it's like, but that's the thing is that it all leads up to this very tragic moment in their lives because Marissa Tomei is uh, separated from, and it's not so subtly hinted at a very abusive guy uh, played by William Mapother. Mapother. Is that how you say his last name? I think it's Mapother Mapother. It's Tom Cruise's cousin. Right. And he was a... I didn't know that. Yep, that's all he, he was got. Tom Cruise's cousin. Yep. Wow, that's wild. Doesn't look. That's anything why. He, that's like why Tom he's Cruise. in like Mission Impossible Two, and he's in. Oh. He, he's in. Um, he's in Minority Report. No shit. Mm-hmm. Okay, that all makes sense now. Yeah. I thought he was just having you know kind of a run because I mean he was in a bunch of these indie movies, mm-hmm. notably Boys Don't Cry. Yeah, is the other he's one good. I always remember him. No, he's a he's really really good actor. He's amazing in this movie. That's it. Like every performance in this film is pitch perfect. Yeah. Like it, there's not a false note to any one of the actors. Like it's, it's absolutely incredible. And I'm not going to like, you just went out on the, the uh, limb uh, with hyperbole about Kate Blanchett and about how like tar is like the performance of the lifetime for me in the bedroom. Every time I watch it, I it's one of those movies where I wonder if this is one of the best films like I've ever seen in terms of just, he has a vision he has a story he wants to tell and he has a very specific way he wants to tell it. And he gets this unique, uh, specific core of performers together. And all of them are just on the same wavelength the entire time. And they just knock it out of the fucking park because like it strikes an incredible tone. All of the acting is just out of this world. And the final note that it leaves you on again is so haunting and ambiguous that you can't shake it. Like I watch this movie and I think about it for days and I've probably seen this 20 times now. And like, I, I never forget a minute of it. Like I can do whole scenes with it, but it's like, it turns because her abusive husband ends up shooting Nick Stahl's character. And it's about how his parents, Tom Wilkinson and Sissy Spacek basically grieve and decide if they want to move on or not after that. And you texted me something kind of funny is that we kind of agreed that little children is like the better version of American beauty. And this, you said is the better version of Manchester by the sea. And I never considered that. And that's pretty clever. Yeah, no. So it's funny. Again, you were, you know, you're saying how personal his movies are to you and like how formative they were. Um, I saw in the bedroom in the theater opening weekend, um, because I was just at that era of my life, I just saw everything, and he, and especially indie shit. I'm like, yes, like I was getting ready to go to college for film school. I was like, I'm going to see all the shit, and it affected me so deeply. I never wanted to see it again. I think I think the death scene is one of the most disturbing scenes I've seen put to film. It's so emotionally disturbing. Again, with the 40 minutes of setup. Um, but again, you were talking the inevitability of everything and the kind of stuckness of the characters and the inaction of this freight train. Even the first time you see it, you go, oh man, someone's going to fucking die. I don't know who, but someone's going to die. And when I rewatched this last night, like 
I wanted to turn it off. Like, and I'm pretty cynical when it comes to like being emotionally moved by films. Like you and I watch shit all the fucking time. We watch hardcore horror. Like we watched fucking French new extremity. I think this is more disturbing emotionally to me than like even martyrs is because martyrs is like, Oh, it's fucked up. And it's so nihilistic. This is like, I think what in the bedroom really hit me about was the personal aspect of for me in high school, you know, I, my dad, like Tom Wilkinson looks and acts like my dad in this movie. And like, one of the best performances I've ever seen. In he, movie he's too, by the way, he's, he's next level of the love he has in his eyes for his son. The scene where he comes down, basically his last chance to convince his son to leave when he, they're at the docks and he's like, Dave, you keep coming down. He goes, I like spending time with my son. That's all he means. Like, and next, like, his mom Sandy he was like, no. And it's just like this moment of like, he just wants to be around his son while he's in town. And that was my dad. My dad's biggest fear and still is, and a lot of parents' fears was me dying. So we had a, we had a friend of the family who, who died in a horrible car accident, a kid my age. I was on lockdown for the rest of high school. I couldn't go anywhere. And I, my dad said to me, I was like, dad, I got to go out. He's like, I'd rather have you mad at me than dead. And like, that's this movie that the first 40 minutes are these characters, these parents saying, you're going to come to a bad end. And one saying, I want to keep you at home. And one saying, I want to be the cool dad, you know? Well, and the other thing too, is that I'm glad that that's you heavy. Sorry. That up but, too. No, no, yeah. no. It's perfect because again, bringing it back to the inaction versus action kind of theme that runs through all of his movies is that you watch this community. Everybody is whispering about this relationship during the first 40 minutes. Yep. And, but they're doing it in a way that's almost like, oh, it's a summer fling. That'll oh, end bad. End. Yeah. He's going to go off to college. She's going to jump around to the next dude. Because that's the other thing is she's more judged for it than he is. Like, he's celebrated because he's tapping basically like that's it. the hottest MILF like in, in the village, yeah. let's say. All the and dads are looking at her. kind of like, because yeah. even like, Sissy Spacek makes, I think it's the comment to, to Tom Wilkinson where she's like, well, he's not the first, you know, like you've heard the rumors that she's kind of bounced around or yeah. whatever, but the whole time they do tell him like, maybe you should stop this, but they do to, to take a, a saying my dad used to, to impart on us when we were kids is they're giving him enough rope to hang himself. Yep. Let's say not thinking that the worst is ever going to happen. And then the they're rest thinking of heartbreak. the movie, they're thinking heartbreak. Yeah. Exactly. They're just thinking exactly on like a, a young kid level of like, Oh, you guys will break up. You'll be mopey for a few days, but then you'll go off to architecture college, prime meet the girl of your dreams, become rich and famous and like design a whole bunch of buildings and whatever. And we'll be proud of you and what, you know, that's how life goes. But instead your dad's worst fear basically comes true in that he dies. And then the movie becomes almost like a blame game for 40 minutes or so where Tom Wilkinson and Sissy Spacek both blame themselves and each other for what, and it's one of the most realistic depictions of what grief is like because it's all about like assigning it's like could I have done more like if we would have saw the warning signs before could we have stopped it and then also like 
the idea of like maybe all of the actions that we performed as parents kind of led up to this point and it was fate in a weird way. It's just, it's so, it's like devastating because it's real, because it does tap into this idea of like, these are the things that we talk about that could go wrong, but nobody actually believes will go wrong. And that's what happens in the story. I remember seeing a premiere, like an early screening of Rabbit Hole, the John Cameron Mitchell film. Good ass movie. It is a good movie. Also very similar to this about how to deal with grief, right? And, you know, the difference is, is I think that this film never succumbs to sorrow porn. Um, There are quite a few dramas that I think are this like, how sad can our actors be? And it builds to a fight scene. Like that is the kind of one of the climaxes of this film is their argument. They're, they're kind of like them. The Oscar clip. The Oscar clip, right? And one of the greatest scenes I've ever seen in a movie theater. But again, Field just does. We're talking about Field doing what a kind of plot that other people have done, but just better. Or just right. You know what I mean? Like Or the, his. Or his. I think, Sorry, I think you're it's right. More, yeah. It's not better or worse. There's no qualitative things to it because this is my big theory about Field's career is that he's made now three movies that are all in the mold of master auteurs, but very different. Yeah. Master Auteurs is that in the bedroom is his Ingmar Bergman movie. 100%. Like it's him doing almost Virgin Spring, but in Maine. Or Cries and Whispers. Or Cries and Whispers. Yeah. Like there's so much Bergman in this film. And then Little Children is obviously Kubrick. It's him doing American Beauty, but through the lens of almost like Barry Lyndon. And then Tar, which this will be a mild spoiler for our discussion when we get move forward, because I, I'm so surprised that nobody has hit on this more. And maybe they've they've skirted around the issue because they don't want to talk about his movies. And also part of it could be, admittedly, because I've watched a bunch of his movies lately. It's a Polanski film. Yeah, and like Tar is yeah. Tar is in the mold of like especially late era ghostwriter Polanski. Like it that that's the movie it made me think of the most about sympathizing with these monsters who are now in exile and trying to figure out whether or not they're guilty. Well, yeah, it's, it's somewhat, you know, it's about Polanski as you know, she's a, Polanski, oh God, yeah. she's a Polanski st- stand in, but I also, I mean, I know I bring him up a lot, but it felt very Haneke to me. There, there are a lot of the way he shot. It was very like cachet. Um, there is so a, detached, there's a detached, there's a detached kind of like voyeuristic view um, and well, I, a lot of his movies are about voyeurism. You're always looking at people through other people's eyes. Like within the bedroom, you're almost, it's almost like a Greek chorus thing to where the town becomes the chorus and you're staring directly at Nick Stahl and Marissa Tomei through their eyes and you're getting their judgments the entire time. Yeah. And then it all shifts onto, you know, the, the fates eyeing Sissy Spacek and Tom Wilkinson and seeing like how you judge them and how you view their actions in the wake of this like horrible tragedy. The same thing with like little children, little children takes it to like the nth degree because you literally have a detached third person narrator who's doing the entire Tom Perota book, yep. you know, like sometimes word for word from the text, if you've ever actually read the book and like, he's letting you view in 
on almost like an ant farm where these suburban like losers are all living in their McMansions and having their book club meetings and going to soccer games in the local pool. But like, this is never, it treats that world almost as like a world that you would never be invited into. Yeah. That's one of the coolest tricks that little children pulls is that it, it makes the ordinary feel untouchable in a yeah. weird way or cold and clinical. And then tar goes even further and it almost becomes because have you read that the cut uh review of tar where it's just the girl but i think it's a woman going off because like she watched the movie and liked it and then <gasps> and thought it was and i heard about it that and thought lydia tar was real and then when she found out she wasn't real she got pissed and then instantly disliked the movie one of the dumbest fucking takes that's ever existed in the history of takes because it's like Dude, you don't know how movies work. They're not real. Like, even documentaries, not truth. Like, you're not watching real life. Like, there's a manipulation there. You're always looking through somebody else's eyes. And Field gets that in a way that almost feels, I don't want to say De Palma-esque, because it's totally different from the way that De Palma uses, like, voyeurism. Right. That's more thriller plot-based. Yeah, and, this is yeah. always, like, you're you're always, like, peering in kind of like a animal kingdom at this this like kind of microcosm that you're not a part of while like other people comment on it. And it's just, it's ingenious. Yeah. No, I, I think I like what you said that it's, it's not better. It's, it's, it's his. And that's, I think a lot of those films that we have forgotten from that era. And this kind of included besides the fact that field made it is those dramas, those family dramas just kind of went by the wayside. They aren't, they aren't made anymore. They were kind of a dime a dozen, so you have to pay closer attention and watch a film like this. Go, oh, no, this is something, a guy doing something different. Like, it's not just about this story. It's the way he's telling it. Another thing that I really noticed watching this that got me really excited last night, and I was, like, taking copious notes, was the whole thing's an Edward Hopper painting. The whole fucking thing. Oh, yeah. Because Hopper, like, he did a lot of paintings of, of towns like this, obviously besides his city work. And I'm, Hopper's my favorite painter. I love his, like, his view of Americana. And I was reading this great article today about Hopper is the painter of the pandemic. This is all about isolation. It's all these characters alone staring out windows. There's a shot in um, in the bedroom uh, where she's watching uh, Tom Wilkinson mow the lawn, and she's just by the window. And there's the the mirror to the right, and it's so perfectly fucking framed. And it literally is a Hopper painting. Like you, if you like look, if you just painted that, like that's Hopper. Like the use of light, that like kind of afternoon light that he would do. There's um, also, a lot of Hopper stuff is about two, about a couple in a room unable to speak to one another. And like the scene where she's watching TV and he sits down is a Hopper painting. So it's like that he, cigarette just smoldering just, in her hand. Yeah, full on Ripley cigarette just going on forever. And this is, it's because you're saying he's pulling from Bergman, but he's also pulling from like visually like American masters of, of painters. Like he's pulling from all different types of media which other painters do as well, but other filmmakers do. But I think this one in particular is like, this is my Hopper film. Well, that opening prologue that's probably no more than 90 seconds long is one of the most striking stretches of cinema that ever kind of like influenced me going up. Like I remember trying to replicate it both in early scripts that I wrote and like one early short film that I shot. And it's the whole like, 
Nick Stahl and Marissa Tomei oh, running yeah. up into the field, getting under that giant tree in the middle of this isolated main field, laying together in the tall grass. It is very Malikian. But it's and like very in, Virgin Spring, like you yeah, said. And Virgin Sw- Spring yeah. and Bergman and their hands intertwining and her just whispering, like, I can feel our life together and stuff. And like, it's so, I remember, and I've told this story before, so I apologize to those regular listeners who have heard this, but it's like, when I saw this movie, I saw it, I was a senior in high school. It was playing at the Regal Lionville, the like little nine screen movie theater outside of Philadelphia that we went to all the time. Like even when we were like kids, it now got demolished. I think it's a Wawa now. Um, but like we went there and it was one of those deals that they used to do back in the day where you would see the ad and like the Philadelphia Inquirer, and it would be like, Come see this movie, and then afterwards you can stay and watch an early screening of this new critically acclaimed film that played at Sundance in the bedroom. And I remember reading about it because I was already a fucking dork reading movie reviews like every day, especially because the Philadelphia Inquirer, when I was growing up, had quite uh, the, the kind of murderer's row of film critics. You had Carrie Rickey, Stephen Ray, um, and then uh, Desmond Ryan was also in there, who was Chris Ryan from The Ringer's dad. Shit. You know, who sadly passed, unfortunately. But, like, you would read the, the entertainment spe- section, especially on Fridays. I remember, like, I would take my parents' paper and walk to the bus stop uh, waiting, you know, f- for the bus to school, and I would read The Weekender because I wanted to read the reviews. And, like, when I was in high school, I, I can't remember if it was like Premier Magazine or one of those who did like a Sundance like recap and was like, oh, in the bedroom, like this is going to be a thing that you need to watch. So I remember seeing the ad and being like, oh, yeah, that's right. This is that big Sundance movie. I got to go see it. And we went and I can't for the fucking life of me tell you what the first movie was because in the bedroom blew me and my brother's hair back so hard and we walked out in such an emotional daze after that movie because it was like nothing else mattered like we, it was one of those like total like neuron rewiring art experiences in your life where you're like well I don't look at anything else like on the screen or really like in general that's the same way because like this movie changed the way I think like and I wanted to capture the feeling in that elemental wistful uh like you were saying like kind of a representation of like a summer love like that 90 seconds under that tree is like one of the greatest summations of what it is to fall in love for a brief period and just know that you want to be with this person forever but it's probably doomed yeah yeah it's um and you see you see like it this was a fun episode to kind of prep for because you know we have a filmmaker's got three films it can make it somewhat more difficult to find auteurist like kind of connections, right? Um, because you have a larger, you know, a larger collection of films, it's easier to draw the connections. And this, I think, one of the things you start to see is this theme of civilization versus like primal humanity, right? And there's or tribalism, you know, that from the beginning of all these films, there's a tribal nature, there's a there's an organization of how things are done. 
in this society, in this microcosm. Well, and, and there's power structures. And there's power structures. But I think specifically about Tom Wilkinson's character, the father, that he is constantly, for the first part after his son is, it dies, he's more interested in being polite in this weird way. I think it's what makes him makes Sissy SpaceX character so angry is she's like, you're not being affected. He's like, he's being affected, but his way is to just be like, keep being polite. There's that scene where he's at the diner with his friend and his friend keeps asking him over and over again, like when's the trial? And you could see him just like, I don't want to fucking talk about this, but he'd rather you have any not. hot sauce. Yeah. He, yeah, he Tabasca. he's looking for some kind of out and you watch him build in this really realistic way of, of like when he finally is like, I don't need to be civilized. Like I need to like do what needs to be done in this, in this, tribal well and it's back to the idea of like you comparing it to manchester by the sea it's like can i get over it can i live with this guy existing in the world that i do knowing that he put this level of pain on me knowing that he inflicted this hurt on like my straight up like soul and my wife's soul can he can he exist can we coexist and the the film is decisively like no, <laughs> we can't because that's the, the other thing about it is that to, to bring it back to the power structure idea is that I love that field again, not so subtly keeps cutting back to the cannery. Oh yeah. That's basically like almost it's more or less implied that this is where the majority of like the blue collar middle to lower middle class folks in town work. But also the dad of the and killer. The da- but that's where um, I'm going so with yeah, it. Owns the, it. The dad of the guy who kills his son, the Strout Company, they're the main game in town because they even at the barbecue, uh, Nick Stahl's one buddy goes like, oh man, Mr. Strout still talks about you all the time. You're the best cannon he ever had. And it's like, like it all, it looms over it. And even after the murder occurs, like we keep having these scenes of either like when they're driving back and forth between their errands or going out or whatever, like either yeah, Tom Wilkinson or Sissy Spacek will stare out the window and they'll see the cannery. It almost is like this harbinger of doom, this, this Lovecraftian lighthouse on the, the horizon, like just hovering over everything. Yeah, like letting you exactly <laughs> yeah. letting you know that something horrible is on the horizon, but also letting you know that you can become the town doctor or you can study in this like obscure folk music and bring it to these uncultured singers. The black eye also one of the best, uh, yeah. Next time, like little details I've ever seen in my life about like small town abuse, let's say, but, um, you can do all of this and you can reach almost like the peak of what success can be inside of this community, but someone will always have more privilege and something above you. Yeah. It also makes me think of, and I love that comparison and like, it's very novelistic. I mean like all of his, all, all three films like are, well, they're, they're as dense as a novel because like we're saying like he's made three feature films, but they're all so thick with meaning. Like, I thought, I mean, this one I've seen before. I'd seen Little Children before. Tar has been with me all fucking week. I saw it a week ago, and I'm still thinking about and and processing. And when you're like, oh, this is what cinema can do, it's really exciting. And I, I think even to his first film, In the Bedroom, you have this depth of meaning and, and ways you can look at it. But yeah, he uses, 
he uses very like novelistic metaphors, you know, again, of like, that's something from like a Dickens book of like a looming factory, you know, that's there. Well, I'm glad you brought up Dickens too, because his movies are, as you've learned through all of our conversations together, they contain one of the elements that I most value in cinema is that they're textured. Like your favorite word. <laughs> interiors and he evokes spaces and places possibly better than most directors, if not all of his era. Like when you're in Sissy Spacek and Tom Wilkinson's house, like you know exactly who owns this house. When you're on that boat, like you can smell the sea air, you can you can like feel the lobsters in your hands. You can like just kind of catch a witch whiff of that like kind of brininess if you've ever like stayed on on the like a northeastern beach town or whatever. Like the air feels different, the sun feels different. Like everything about it is just it's specific to that place. When they're sitting in that backyard at that barbecue, like you can hear that Red Sox game going. You can smell the hot dogs. Like it's all just of a piece, right down to like I remember at the time. A lot of people made fun of Mar- Marissa Tomei's accent, like kind of doing a My Cousin Vinny yeah. thing because she you know, won thick. the Academy Award for that. Well, I also wonder how deliberate it is because nobody else speaks with that accent. Like Wilkinson, who is a Brit and he's doing an American accent, is very measured and very educated. So he has basic has a little bit yep. and you hear it in kind of the lumpier kind of extras. You get a little bit of that new England, but I think Tomei turning it on to that degree is kind of purposeful because it's almost like it's a, it's a signifier of her class. Oh, absolutely. To where she's the town, not quite harlot, but like she's the low rent woman that like, if you, you know, she's separated. She has her two kids. And if you sleep with, you might be the father of the third if you're not careful. It's, you know, and all of a sudden Nick Stahl's not going to college and, and studying architecture. He's staying there and he is a lobster fisherman for the rest of his life, whether he likes it or not. And I think that's what they're kind of getting at with all the whispering before. But I also think Tomei it's a, has always been a better, despite being an Academy Award winner and, you know, the woman of my dreams, frankly. She's just gorgeous. Like, yeah. Also, just you totally get oh, no, you how, get it. like, if, you're, if your parents were like, don't do it, Bobby. Don't do it. Like, you see her? Like, she's going to get you into trouble. You'd be like, yeah, but she looks like fucking Marissa Tomei. Like, come on. And also, from my vantage point, as Seinfeld also taught us, she is into stocky men. I now and bald men. I'm not short, so I'm not quite the Costanza mold, but I might have a shot. You're with far Marissa from Tomei. Costanza. <laughs> They're like, look, Martin, her ex-husband's gonna shoot you through the fucking eye. In the face. But you can be with her for two more weeks. I would have to consider it. Yeah. Um, but no, I mean, actually, while you're talking, it makes me think again more about why I think this film hits so hard, I think, for especially of people who were for us who were at that age, like we're very close to Nick Stahl's age in this film when this movie came out. And again, this was similar to like my upbringing is like my parents were intellectuals in a small Indiana town. And there was a sense of we're better than, you know, there was a sense of we're liberal. Everyone else is right wing. Everyone else is like working class. They would never say that, but there was an energy of that. And so I think it's another reason this film hit me so hard was that kind of, and the, the, the way the promise your parents say it, it's a theme too of like, I want more for you. What do you fucking do with that? 
you know, I, I want more for you than this. And when you start to say, no, but I kind of like it here. Like, I grew up here. You don't like it here? Like, it gets into that home, the simple hometown versus leaving town theme. Well, and that theme is literalized and even vocalized in Little Children. Where yes. She, you know, Kate Winslet's character interprets Madame Bovary and has the whole monologue about it's great. the desire, the yearning for more, the, the transcendence beyond, like, your current social status. Like, Field is also... Like, he, he can't turn his back to class, especially as the guy who invented Big League True. I didn't know I just that today, knew that. Today, I read that. I, I, I was saving that to say to you. I was like, I'm going to throw this curveball in here. I never knew that for the longest time that he invented Big League Chew because he was a bat boy in Portland or you, something. And he did it with, like, Kurt Russell. Kurt Russell's dad was his the, dad. Kurt Russell's dad was the, the owner. It's that yeah. whole documentary, The Wild whatever a baseball yeah. on Netflix. It's an amazing documentary. But yeah, I was like, wait, I remember seeing Todd Field interviewed in that documentary about being the Bat Boy. As a youngster. That's crazy. As a blue-collar youngster himself, he invented in the, the Field kitchen, the Field family kitchen, the first batch of Big League Chew. They and sold it. Apparently, it set him up for life. Yeah. So, like, that's how he funded his company and everything. So, it's like, <laughs> imagine being the guy who invented Big Lee Chu and you also directed In the Bedroom and Tar. <laughs> what a life. But, like, yeah, I mean, you wonder, as a bat boy in Portland at the time, if that was, like, the imaginings that he had. Because, I mean, like, I grew up as a guy, you know, my dad was an insurance salesman. He did very well. And a, a stock trader. He did very, very well for himself. Had some, you know, unfortunate economic things kind of happen to him. And they ended up being a mailman for like a huge mm. chunk of my life. So like a lot of my time was spent hanging out with his fellow postal workers. My brother worked in the post office for a couple summers with him, you know, before college and in between like college years. And like, you watch the transition from how our family saw ourselves as being this upper class. Mm. Like I went to private school where you wore a fucking blazer and shit every day. And then like my dad lost his job while my brother was still in high school and he's going to public school and stuff. So our experiences as brothers are even totally different from one another because our family went from like, Oh, we're like upper middle class and doing well to like, we are, the blue, blue collar, collar yeah. you know, salt of the earth, like America too. Um, but yeah, the, the, what you were saying about your own family is that it's like you learn how you look at the world and others and how others view you differently when you get to see both sides of that coin. Yeah. Yeah. And it's, I think all three of these films are, they, he uses mirrors a lot in these all three, you know, especially in, in the first two. But I mean, it's a very, a very simple, you know, metaphor, but, you know, the idea of like, it does kind of put it to the audience. It is, it is putting us under the microscope and saying like, Hey, like, where do you fall in this? Is this, this is attached to you, little children and tar especially are about the lines of civilization of what is unforgivable. You know, the idea of like, where do we draw the line with who can stay in our society and who can't, you know, what can you not come back from murder, abandoning your children, not pedophilia though. It seems like Todd field is okay with Jackie or Hilly playing a pedophile and being the most sympathetic character in little children. Well, and 
And is, is it cool to talk more little children now? Yeah, that's where I want to go with this. Yeah, so that was the, there was a line in Little Children. And Little Children, so like, it's my least favorite of the three. Um, and Probably mine too. But that doesn't mean I don't like it. And No, it's great. And Borderline masterpiece. Yeah, it's it's really fantastic. And ever, again, the performances he gets from people who are all good, usually, are like at their best. Like, Patrick Wilson, I don't think, has ever been better than this his ability to use his good looks in this kind of like self-effacing way. Dude, his like weird run of vapid, like himbo cuckold in like the two thousands. Like he was just, he was the king of that man up into even insidious. He's just this useless father. That's what I mean. With the same kid, Ty Simpkins playing his kid. Like kind of good looking suburban dad. Yeah. Just, and again, they call him the prom king in this like, making fun of him way, but also were attracted to him. But what I kept thinking of this film was the, the line that kind of is just the key to the movie is because you were saying that we were texting earlier that Jackie Earl Haley's character shows up quite late in the movie. He and his mother are like 45, almost an hour in. Yes. You're, you're almost, you're almost at the halfway point. You're almost in the midpoint of the film. Right. And what's interesting is she, you know, he's sitting there, this wonderful scene of like, she's in her armchair. He's in his armchair and it's great two shot of them like per- perfectly framed as Todd field is want to do. And cause he, this is his most Kubrickian. Oh yes. This is the one where he uses all of the Kubrickian zooms, the centered framing, yeah. the slow pans. Like he's doing a very specific thing. Absolutely. And, and just the blocking as well and the framing, everything. But he says, he says, I'm a bad person, mom, mama. And she says, you're not a bad person. You did a bad thing. That's the key to the movie. That's the key to, I think, of all three of these is that question of can a person be a bad person? Is there a thing you can do that stains your soul forever, right? To be a true pariah of is there anything left of you if you do X? And there's a spectrum, though, right? There's a spectrum of what people do in Little Children of on one end you have, you know, uh, this this pedophile who is – who is you know exposed himself to children? Even maybe even past that, you have the Noah Emmerich character who killed a kid, you know, as a cop, and you put them together, and then a you black have kid. A, a, yes, um, who is in who had a who had a BB gun, and then you go to the other end. It's like like this movie is kind of prescient in a weird way. Like it's do it's making a lot of social commentary on stuff that still resonates sixteen years later. Absolutely, and but again, it's like you start to like the film starts to put up this spectrum and we'll get to the idea of, you know, me too, but cancel culture is a spectrum of wrongdoing almost of like, where do we put people, you know, if you do X, are you, are you just an outcast? Are you done? Or is there a great, can you come back from that? Can you change? Is there a gray area for like, we're human, we err, you know, it, why is it different for what's the difference between her husband who's ordering panties online from a woman and, and jerking off with it on his face and a guy who exposes himself to children, you know, and it's like slutty K slutty K, but you're, you're, he's asking these things and kind of comparing them. And he does that with tar as well, where he really throws things up in the air and like, does not give you foundation for judgment for us as the audience or the characters. Every, any character who judges is like, well, Hey, there's this thing you're doing as who gives you the right, you know, it's the glass house analogy, you know, sure. Well, there's two things I want to bounce off of in in what you just said, too, which was all really good, is that beyond just that line that you bring up, 
the monologue that she has where she calls her son a miracle, her pedophile son and takes his face into her hands and says, you're a miracle. We're all miracles because we live as humans every day going on, knowing that the things that we love will one day die and we keep going. Animals don't do that. Animal versus human. That's, that's the big, to me, the Rosetta stone for the whole movie. And again, I, I bring up the animal kingdom comparison for a reason is that I feel like this is the only of the three movies where field passes actual judgment on his characters mm. to where we're looking in with him being like, look how shitty these people are. See that guy. He did a fucked up thing, but is he as bad as them? I don't think so. Yeah. No, it, you're right, because it, 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 again, he puts them, they use him, they use Jackie Earl Haley's character as himself a Rosetta Stone of like, if I tell you in my story, this is not your worst character, what would you do? And it throws the whole world into like a stark relief, right? Because everything is, is flipped. Imagine fucking film Twitter reacting no to this way. movie today if it came out. Well, it's like some of the stuff he does in Tar that we'll talk about that people got really mad about. Yeah. You know, it's I like, think they would get even more mad about little children. Oh, guaranteed. Like, there's so much in this movie that it would be memed into oblivion. It's kind of amazing that both, and I guess it's probably just a time thing because the internet has a fucking goldfish memory. Yeah. That it's like, that this isn't a huge memeable movie. Like, in the bedroom, you know, not exactly... <laughs> A no. meme movie, but like little children feels like if you released it in 2022, like you would have gifts all over Twitter, him on the skateboard, the skateboard stuff, all of like, especially the, like the, the sexy Patrick Wilson, like there would be a whole Tumblr page, like dedicated to Patrick Wilson and like, uh, Jackie Earl walking out with the flippers and the like Kate that. Winslet's ba- red bathing suit. Yeah. Like this movie is sexy. Like, that's the one thing is, like, Todd Field knows what's kind of hot in it. The sex scenes in it are great. That first one between Kate Winslet and Patrick Wilson where he's fucking her on top of that washing machine is, like, oof. Well, it's – it's he's playing on, like, these very cliche, it was a rainy day. We got into the house to get out of the rain. It's these things right out of a boudoir novel. Yeah. You know, and again, like, the Madame, Madame Bovary is another kind of Rosetta Stone in this, in this film of – you know, the, the the woman who the film also judges her bitchy neighbor, who's just this judgmental bitch from the beginning. I was like, it feels very clear that the she Lydia sucks. The Lydia of the neighborhood. Yeah, just the worst, right, of this these this this hen session of these three women. But her saying, she's a slut. Madame Bovary's a slut. And that gives the kind of power to Kate Winslet to say, like you said, it's more about the freedom to, to rise, not just from my station, but just, you know, out of my reality. And, like, can I escape this trap that I'm in. Um, and it's beyond about just cheating on your husband. The simplistic thought of if you cheat, you're a horrible person. Well, it's another running theme in fields movies to where fantasy, particularly male fantasy, but also here he flips it and makes it female fantasy too. Because like in, in the bedroom, one of the accusations that Sissy Spacek levels against Matt Fowler uh, Tom Wilkinson's character is that he's vicariously living 
through Nick Stahl and his affair with Marissa Tomei. And she straight up says, like, he died for your fantasy piece of ass. And, like, it's one of the, the thing, one of the most fucking, like, heinous moments in the whole movie is that you couldn't imagine, like, somebody that you love, like, saying that to you. But, again, it's just that all that misplaced, like, rage and grief kind of coming out all in that incredible uh, and very stagey kind of argument between the two to where they, they both take turns having the upper hand and it ends with, again, one of the greatest pieces of acting I've ever seen in my life. Not ends, but like the, the big kind of climax to it is him monologuing at her and telling her she's about like the time that he, you know, she pulled him out of a little league For game because he throw his dirt, his glove in the dirt and how she's bitter. And then he like, it, it's that hilarious moment where the girl scout. Yep. Like stops to sell candy, candy bars, bars. Yeah. and then he comes back. And he's like, "I'm sorry, nobody should ever say that to somebody they love." Like he knows how to break a scene. It's so great. Well. It's so good. And but it's she, funny too. Yeah, she breaks down. But there's also that a moment that that emotional realization, that moment they have together too, where she's allowed to cry on his shoulder when he comes back and apologizes, and is basically like, "I just keep seeing him." Like he's everywhere and he's like, yeah, I know. I see, I see him everywhere. And he goes, no, not our son. The guy who killed Richard, him, yeah. essentially Richard. And you realize that's the moment where they decide to kill him. Like that's, that's where Matt goes. I can't live with this anymore. And the plan starts to murder this guy, which is just like, oh, that, that again, I hate, layering so much hyperbole on like one movie but this movie means so much to me but like the catharsis in that scene like you want to just like cry with them together because like you've lived through this now with them yeah it's i absolutely that that scene is like again like it's the oscar scene right but it i think what you just got at was that turn of in another film the realization is i miss him i miss him too the end Right. Let's go on. The turn, the way that it twists is you, cause they could have gone that way with her saying, I see him everywhere. I see him everywhere too. Can we do this together? We can. And then no, I see the guy who killed our fucking kid. And the movie goes, it takes that left turn, a realistic left turn. Well, and it never lets you know that they're plotting this either. No. Cause that's one of the great, uh, that, that kind cut. of tools in in Fields toolbox as well as that ellipses. <laughs> again, his movies are as much about inaction as they are action. He's also like he's a master at doling out information, letting you know just enough to keep suspense or keep like your own questioning of the the situation kind of up. Like Tar is a masterclass in that. It's all about what we see versus what we don't see. And it almost becomes like an investigative procedural to where like the audience is, is Columbo trying to be like, did Lydia Tar do all this? Like how much of a monster is this fucking woman? But like he does that within the bedroom to where when 
Matt Fowler pulls that fucking gun on Richard. You're like, oh shit, this is where this is going. I had no idea. And he got it from his friend in that basement who right. was in the military. You're like, oh. Yeah, you start yeah, piecing yeah. it together and you go, oh yeah. But you, then, I hate to put it this way, with the especially the, the way that movie ends so ambiguously with like the wind whistling outside, him looking at his trigger finger, and then her being like, Matt, do you want coffee? And the movie ends... I always wonder how easily any detective worth their salt would be able to put that all together and be like, well, it's clearly that fucking guy. Yeah, I mean, it's like... But also, does it matter in that cloistered community that he's, again, obsessed with? Like, would the detective just be like, well, we all think he did it, and we'll probably whisper about it for years to come until he's dead and long after. He's like an urban legend now of the guy who killed the dude who killed his son. You know, like, that's yeah. just what it is, but we could never prove it because he killed him, he buried him in the woods, and, like, that was that. And, frankly, nobody fucking liked that guy. So, like, he's a big enough piece of shit that we didn't really look that hard. Yeah, it, well, you, you get that with the Northeast, that kind of these towns that are kind of stuck in time. Right. That it has a feeling of like an 1800s novel of like everyone knew the doctor killed the man who killed his son, but things just went on the way they always had. You know, it has yeah. that like feeling of a, a fable. Um, I had a question though, and there's that line in that scene of him lying in bed. And you, of course, at the very again, somewhat simple but strong analogy of he's finally healed because he killed him. He takes the band aid off, right? But before that, She's like, are you okay? And he goes, I saw a picture on his wall of her and him. Something about way, her smile. And the way she was looking at him. The way she was smiling, I think he said. Yeah. And the way, there's a lot of ways you can interpret that. My thought, oh, yeah. my thought was, I could kill her too. Was one thought. Was she's also culpable that I saw her give the same smile to my son. That she is this this whore. That's that's one hundred percent how I've okay. always read it. Not necessarily that. She, well, well yeah, I guess her, that yeah. she's this whore. Maybe that like was it all for nothing? Was it just this woman? Yeah. who loved to bounce around, loved you know having sex with these different guys. It's why her marriage didn't work out. It's why you know their relationship with their son probably wouldn't work out in the long run. And thank God, you know, it, it's almost like there's two kind of like two options here is that, you know, Nick Stahl's character gets killed. That's the worst part. Or he didn't get killed. None of the stuff with Richard happens, but down the line, she cheats on him and basically like, takes the two kids forgets all the good times that that all awesome like opening 90 seconds together that capturing of young love like it's the idea that like is everything that we do futile how how easy she gave that yeah. love and how like yeah. yeah that 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 was spread around and maybe and again i i also wonder if it is partially a self-indictment on his part of being like could i have been susceptible to that same smile mm. like did i look at her and fall in love with her just as much as my son did or as richard did and that compelled me to kill him just as much as my son's death did like again it's todd field the master of fucking ambiguity you no know, and by I, watching this time it really hit me hard because i was like 
seeing a lot of these angles and another angle too um is just that uh you know it's it's really amazing again like you said you can take a lot from this another thing off of that is you talk about the blame game and that is kind of one of the this the themes of this film is you spend about 40 minutes or a third of the film with C Space Second Tom Wilkinson playing the blame game with one another. It's going back and forth because they have no other option, right? And the moment they heal together and stop blaming each other is her saying, admitting, I see him everywhere. And they, they, they put all their energy into, now we know who to blame. It's not us. It's the guy who did it. We kill him. And if you want to take it a step further, that ending is if you go down that path of blame, there's a lot more people, her included possibly. And I, I don't want I'm not trying to make it a Hollywood twist. It's like, Oh, he's going to kill her now. But like, there's just, it almost feels like once you open that door, it's not a closed thing. I killed the guy and now it's fine. Well, and I also think there's a poetic explanation quite literally kind of placed in the movie itself is that to go off of the blame game ideas that it's like, this guy did this. He's the one who's guilty. Yeah. He shot our fucking kid. Yeah. Like he we can the apply yeah. all of it. You know, we can say like, you did this in the past and let him get to this point. Or I did this in the past and, and let it get to this point. Or she smiled at him or cheated on him and started this romance with our kid and probably shouldn't have. Like you can do all of that. But at the beginning of this episode, I read the poem that is in one of my other favorite scenes from this movie where like, you know, Wilkinson and Nick Stahl used to go and play poker with, you know, his buddy and all of these kind Nick of Stahl's old, kind of boss. Yeah, yeah. His old fisherman buddies that he, he goes on the, the boat with and does, you know, lobsters with, let's say. And, you know, that, you can sense as part of like their father son ritual together. It's just a thing that they did together that he misses. And when he goes and plays poker again with these old buddies, there's that sense of when they deal the cards, they get to his kid's seat and there's just this dead like moment where he can't decide he can't move. He's frozen. And they usually give him shit for that. And they usually give him shit for that. And then there's the one older gentleman He's an old lobster fisherman, and he's like, God bless you, Todd Field, for your fucking casting decisions because no, like this guy delivers on just a few scenes with this character, but they become so pivotal. And honestly, like I'm going to struggle to get through this without tearing up myself, but like he relieves the tension because back when Nick Stahl was alive, he used to do just impromptu poetry. William Blake. And William Blake yeah. things. And they would all make fun of him for that. That was the thing that would make fun of him. Well, Tom Wilkinson was indecisive. This was the guy who was reciting all of these poems and they'd be like, Oh my God, not again. But he recites this, I believe it's Longfellow poem. I'd have to look it up. Um, that goes on that I quoted at the beginning of this. And it's such a beautiful, like, little moment where you watch again Tom Wilkinson's face give you like pages of dialogue as this guy's doing this po this very weird moment where like if you were with your friends and they did this to you in real life you would be like what 
are you fucking doing? But it's so moving. And then, but it, it ends with, and a boy's will is the wind's will. And the thoughts of youth are long, long thoughts. And to me, that's one of the other keys to unlocking this movie is that nobody's to blame. We're always going to think about the times when we were younger, when we could chase girls who looked like Marissa Tomei, when we had the entire future laid out in front of us and we just made the wrong decision. And like... We fell in love with the wrong girl. We took the wrong job. We went to the wrong school. We made the wrong friends. We just did the wrong thing and it just changed everything. But blaming each other, blaming yourself or or blaming anything but just like the choices that people make that you have no like input over is just a fool's errand because at the end you're just, you're dealing with fate. You're dealing with the cosmos and like, and our, our lives are fleeting and our lives are lost. But like we go on again to connect it to little children. Like we go on knowing that we go on knowing that everyone around us is going to die or the things that we love are going to one day just be forgotten because like they just meant something to us and nobody else. Like that's what these movies are about. They're about existing And just accepting that fact and then kind of living without that judgment on yourself or each other. Yeah. No, I love that. That's, that's beautiful. Cause it's, you know, and again, if you know, you're, you're looking at obviously this fleeting nature of youth and of, of life and I'm, I'm, you know, which I agree with. And I'm also seeing an idea of, of the levels of sin, like the hierarchy of sin and that a lot of, a lot of little sins happened and choices may happen to get him to where he got shot. One guy pulled the trigger, but a lot of people made choice. A lot of people made mistakes, right? It's like, in a way, the guiltier side is everyone's culpable who brought him to that end. Like, what what happens in the end? Like, you know, because they have a confrontation before he even gets shot. He comes home with a black eye and, like... He even says, no, nah, don't call the cops. His mom wants to call the cops. Tom Wilkinson is like, oh, we can call the cops. But, you know, he basically passes that off to yep. his mother and it allows you to even go back and reflect on those moments and be like, what if they did call the cops? Would Richard have ever killed their fucking kid? But you can't do anything about that now because he's dead. Yeah. You know, and that's it. That's what life is like. And like you brought up while we were watching the movies, the idea that Field loves pariahs and we'll kind of use this to transition into our segment on tar but he loves characters who for one choice or another are now outcasts on their society um you know we talked about in the bedroom you know you said like to you the richard the william mapather uh character is the outcast because he commits a murder I actually disagree with that. No, I think you're right. To yeah. me, Marissa Tomei is the outcast character right up to the line that you bring up. The the whole idea of like, it was the way she was smiling at him. Is that like, first off, she's kind of cast off as like this lower class kind of town harlot, even while she's in this relationship and Nick Stahl's character is still alive. Then he's dead. And then you watch Karen Allen, as the fucking defense attorney in one scene, in one scene, completely Obliter- like yeah. obliterate 
the entire prosecution against uh, Richard's character because of an inconsistency that Marissa Tomei gives yeah. in the police report versus her actual testimony in court. It just, you watch the case get torpedoed in real time. And then, you know, like, you can look at it just from a, a very simple vantage point of like, the Fowlers, their kid is dead. But their life, like, he's still the town doctor. She's still a high school teacher. They're still very successful. Like, their life's going to go on. This part of them is dead. And they do revisit time and time again. Like, and again, this goes back to the whole idea of, like, you can't judge the choices that you've made when you get to a certain point in life. Because it's just, like, it doesn't matter. Like, you, you've done it now. There's no going back. Like, they keep talking about how, like, oh, we kept trying to have one and then we finally had our kid and then we didn't have any others. So like, cause there's that incredibly heartbreaking moment where they go off to that little cabin vacation with, you know, his best friend and his wife and they're going through all the grandchildren, Sissy Spacek and that great character actress whose name she shows up in a bunch of things. She plays, um, Seth Rogen's mom in observe and report. She's so good. And I'm, she's so I'm fucking switching funny. to beer. Yeah. <laughs> I can I can drink them all day and totally keep my shit together. She's that incredible. Like she plays weird... like a bitch a lot in other movies. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. Southern kind of mean woman. Yeah, and but she shows up and she's going through and she's like listing all of her grandchildren and she stops and goes, well, without thinking about who she's talking to because and this is again one of those those moments in this film that makes it feel so real to me because you can imagine yourself saying this with no ill will or intent or anything. It's just, you're having a conversation with your friend and you, you have a stupid like brain fart and she goes, you forgot well, someone died. Yeah. I guess there's no, you know, no chance of us dying off. And the whole conversation ends. Cause you see sissy SpaceX just take a drag of her cigarette and like look out the window and then her friend like realizes what she did and it's like, I'm so, so like, She's I didn't mean it. And that's when you realize like you, you get the whole background about like, we tried to have other kids and then we didn't. And you know, this was our son. Like, this is who we love. But again, you can't judge yourself for that. Like you're at that point in your life to where there's no taking that, that kind of uh, decision back. But, like, you know, Marissa Tomei, her life is in shambles oh, because yeah. of this. It and was before, and it's going to be it was, Yeah, she yeah. was kind of, they, they kind of hint at that she was more or less, she was a good mom. She had a house, but it seemed like the house that she won in the divorce. Yeah. She's, a like, a clerk at a convenience store, and now the whole town knows her as basically the harlot who got that kid with the bright promising future killed and like there's even that incredible moment there's two incredible moments with marissa tomei after this is that the one where wilkinson goes and sees her oh. at the convenience store and is trying to talk to her and it's just it's not happening she's interrupted by customers there's just he can't get the words out and it's just they know what they want to say to each other but it's just like it's it can't it can't be expressed in words and then there's that oh my god again another like earth shattering moment where she goes to try and apologize to sissy spacek when she's you know after i guess directing choir she's kind of sitting mm -hmm. in the big she's got headphones on she's got the headphones on she interrupts and she's like mrs fowler i just want to apologize and come and say it. and she, like spacex says nothing and just fucking decks her in the face 
And the the scream that Marissa Tomei emits in that scene feels straight up like she didn't know she was going to get hit. Like it's so real. And Sissy Spacek hits her so fucking hard with the palm of her hand that I've always wondered. And if I ever got to interview like anyone involved with this, I would ask the question like, was she supposed to slap her in that scene? Because that felt real. Yeah, that's another thing. We'll talk about this. I think it's a good lead-in maybe to Tar. One of the things I noticed, I watched Tar, and then I watched Little Children, and then I watched In the Bedroom Again. So I kind of moved backwards. He is a master of tension and unpredictability. There, he, he creates an atmosphere, and it's partly his just writing as well, of... I know something's going to explode in the scene. There's a bomb somewhere. I don't know the time. I don't know the countdown. I don't know who's going to blow up. I don't know like what's going to happen here, but like there's the scene, the main scene we'll talk about with Tar of just like I can feel it going the wrong way. And as a writer, just from a screenwriting perspective, he's a master of that. And then oh, the way yeah. he directs actors, because sometimes it's just one take. It's just, you know, it's not even like he's cutting. Where you're, you you feel something about to burst from underneath civility. Again, idea of like primal or just like people's true emotions bursting through. Again, like you're saying, very Bergman. You know, you yeah. think of the end of like fucking, you know, the the, the stayed nature of, of cries and whispers and the end of that. You know, you're like, oh, okay. Like when that that Nordic kind of chill bursts through to true anger that melancholy that, that, yeah and I, as a as a full-on nordic person i understand that you know of like you know underneath this calm sea or some some fucked up waves so he's definitely doing that here but he does it even i think more masterfully with tar you want to get to tar i'd love to all right Fields Tar. Martin, we've kind of already spoiled how we feel about this movie. Is it your favorite movie of the year? I think it's the best of the year. Ooh. I, I think it's the... This was one of those films... It's a dick on the table statement from you. Yeah, I. in terms of best new film for me, um, I watch a lot of genre stuff. I think I spend more of my time now watching genre and rewatching horror. You don't say. And I know, yeah, right. <laughs> and I think all our listeners know that too. And so to get back into like drama mode and to see kind of a master at work was really exciting. Like from the beginning of this film, I was like 
okay, I'm in good hands. And it's pretentious, and I love pretentious shit. <laughs> and it's just, it's wonderful. Like, I, it also, I've, it's, it's my, again, it's probably, I guess, second favorite I said, right? You know, I think In the Bedroom is a more perfect film, but I love the sweeping nature of this. Um, There's the argument that the messiness and deliberate pace of Tar might be more interesting yeah. than the perfection of In the Bedroom or the striving perf- for perfection of Little Children. Like, this is a messy movie for all of its attention to precise detail about framing (laughs) camera work. Yeah. About people who literally construct entire personas around both their careers and then their resulting fame from their careers. In the case of Lydia Tarr, like we literally meet her as been, it's been documented in multiple reviews, podcast, yada, yada, yada. Like we meet Lydia Tarr at a New Yorker Q and a, and it's like, and he literally lists off like all of her accolades. Here's her backstory. <laughs> yeah. She is the first woman to conduct a symphony in Berlin. I believe it was. And she's an EGOT, which oh, I, made me have some questions. I'm like, what did she win an Oscar for? Um, Just composing, I think. Yeah. yeah. No, no, but I mean, yeah. like, oh, what, what movie? movie? Yeah. What movie is Lydia Tarr composing for? Do you think it's a Paul Thomas Anderson movie? Do you think it's like, would it be funny if it was like a Star Wars sequel? I was thinking like fucking Marvel would be hilarious. Like she's doing some real like jobber shit to just make like a mill for Marvel. And and it's like, oh yeah, here, I'll throw you like Avengers 3. And they're like, Lydia Tarr, best score of the year from the Academy Award. Philip Glass did the score for Fantastic Four. That's uh, yeah. with Marco Beltrami, and, and he hates like, uh, the Candyman score that he did. They, well, they just yeah, they chopped it up, and well, he, also he, he hates the movie because the original cut he gave had no gore in it. And he loved the kind of mythical urban legend, um, and then that shows you even they, Philip Glass can be wrong. Yeah, well, I love that movie, but um, no, you know it's uh, she's yeah she's an egot, and it's it it is funny that opening because what I like about Field is he is ballsy and brave enough to do what could be considered a, a very lazy thing like to oh, the open, exposition dump to, yeah to open a film with a literal exposition dump of like but it's not about the information it's completely about performance i think for her because you're seeing you're seeing her playing and you see her pretension and like as the scene goes on the details, I think, kind of just fall away of what you're learning about her backstory. They're irrelevant. It's more about the way she handles these questions, the way she goes deep and goes pretentious, too. I mean, she just oh goes... Oh, my God. Her fucking responses on some of these are such, oh. like, hardcore eye rollers. Yeah, absolutely. And it's like that's what the scene... As a conductor, it's not just about keeping time. Well, as she starts getting more enthused in the yeah. interview. Cause the beginning it's like, she's kind of playing, you see her start playing kind of coy and playing like self deprecating maybe a little bit. And by the end it's like, well, let me stop you there. And you see the real, well, she's doing the thing that honestly, as somebody who used to interview filmmakers and actors and famous people, uh, partially for a living is that she does the thing that you actually hope that a subject does to where like you kind of trudge through 
the initial couple questions and it's like, ah, you did all this and here's the PR bullshit we have to get through. And, and now then here's you, the real shit. You hit a certain point to where like they even get fed up and they're like, well, hold on, let me drop some shit on you. And then you get a really good interview. And that's what you really look for in the end because like that's the stuff that people remember interview wise. They don't like there are so many that I performed that were just like canned bullshit to where like I was more or less I could feel both me and the subject like waiting out our time and being like, all right, is it done yet? Because I'll just type it up and then, you know, that's it. I'm telling you what I told Collider. Exactly. You know, well, it's like, you know, I have this and slash film. I had the every experience other outlet before you. I had the experience with like Jonah Hill when I wasn't doing that same stuff or it was that, that amazing experience of like, honestly, we made it 30 seconds before I had to throw all my questions away and it went this wonderful new direction. And like, it was the kids from mid nineties. And, but yeah, no, I mean, I see that side of the scene, but I also see, you know, him actually revealing the true Lydia to us, you know, behind, again, it's like you're saying, it's like the true her behind the bullshit of like, you aren't like your accolades, right? You see her personality shine through and her pretension shine through and her myth-making, I think, around herself and what she does. And the the I mean, you see what she means because I think for a viewer, when I first heard about this, like I have friends who work in music, but like I don't have any friends who are conductors. I have friends who've been composers. Very few do, Martin. Right? Yeah, it, it's hard. I mean, it's a, it's a very elite. But I know what they do. I've been in bands. I've been in, I've been in choirs. But like this from the beginning really shows you what makes it hard and what makes it important. You know. But you also see how she touts herself. It's like. Well, it's not about the composer. It's about my interpretation. It's like my relationship with the composer. Like, oh, this is what we're doing. Because for I think for a layman like me, I'm like, she's a fucking she's a fucking conductor. You know, like that's my first thing. If you're not a music person, you're like, so she keeps time. That's it. You know. And so I think they are. are they very. They give us the information we need as an audience to be like, oh no, this is what makes a great conductor. But also. What, what she thinks makes a great conductor and the, the importance of her station. Yeah, because it, you also wonder if from the outset, like you said, this almost feels lazy in the beginning of the movie to where you're like, okay, it's him just setting up a device so that we can get all the information on our main character who literally is in every frame of the, this three-hour movie going forward that we have to be invested in and we have to know about. But at the same time, it almost feels somewhat like auto-critique on Field's part because of the crazy opening credits to where he literally like rolls what would usually be the end credits for a movie backwards and ends on written, directed, produced by Todd Field to where it almost becomes like, I'm going to introduce you to the orchestra and I am the conductor. And then it becomes about how do I interpret this material, even if it's my own and present it to you. And again, in true Todd field tradition, it's all ambiguous. This is the, out of the three we're discussing today, easily the most ambiguous of all of his movies, like purposefully. So because to, again, to, to bring up a point I said on the last segment, like he almost makes you, the investigator in a mystery to where there is no actual answer. Yeah. Yeah. And she's, you know, in, in Blanche, Blanchette, like really, 
carries us through, you know, because he really hooks, <laughs> he hooks all the energy and the momentum to her. You know, he's obviously making amazing film around her, but like from the beginning, I had a friend who saw it. He goes, this is Kate Blanchett's Daniel Plainview. Blanchett. And I was like, absolutely, you know, not absolutely, but like there's some similar sort of, because I've seen that, that comparison drawn by a few people. I think, there's a key difference and it's not so much in the performance as it is in how field and Anderson present the character to you. Agreed. And how they view their own character. I, I think as well, because like you're very clear from the beginning of there will be blood that like, this is a bad dude. Like in my opinion, like you, you maybe I think there's a sense of like, this guy is hiding something that he is bullshitting these people. no, you don't think so? That's not where I'm going. I actually think one of the great things about There Will Be Blood is that Daniel Playview starts as a human and ends a vampire mm. to where he's just sucking on the blood of capitalism. And one of the ultimate acts of damnation is him rejecting his son, which was his one main, like, link to both the audience and humanity as a whole to where like Daniel Plainview wasn't, I'm not saying he was a good person, but he was an American businessman in like the, the true mold. He went in, he made his own money. He made the people who lived their money a lot of the time. And then he moved on and he kept rising in power. And with power came more corruptibility, let's say. And, his relationship with his son, with H.W., the entire time was the thing that kept us invested with him as a person to where we don't get anything like that with Lydia Tarr. We sort of get it with her partner and Nina Haas, but... It's the daughter, though. No, mm, I would disagree because the daughter, I think... The main interaction that we get with her is when the daughter comes to her and is like, I'm getting picked on at school. And she goes to the school and basically threatens the child. <laughs> to amazing. me, it's another, it's different from Daniel Plainview to where like Daniel Plainview, you would feel like he's doing it because he wants to protect that, his kid, H.W., with Tar, I always feel like it's still about her. It's about her exerting her own sense of force and power over even a child. And her daughter doesn't actually matter in the end. It's the fact that she can wield this in another way. I, I, I do disagree because, okay, um, yeah, because, because of one line um, is the end when she's talking to her wife and her wife says, with you, love is transactional. There's only one person it hasn't been with, which it's is the with daughter. Her, yeah. and, and so I do believe that the, 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 because the way I look at it is there's scenes where her coming and holding her daughter, the, the cuteness of her, her holding her daughter's foot, you know, I need to have my foot held. I'm scared, you know, or being held. There's that weird scene of like, is there a ghost in this house? You know, which is that weird haunting sense, which I love. Which reminded me a lot of Personal Polanski. Shopper. Right? Oh, yeah. I was, I was very much, I, I, that's what, I kept thinking of Personal Shopper the whole time, which I love that movie. Um, but I do believe that that is like, I wouldn't say it's like her, her Achilles heel, but it's like, no, that's the one time she's shown true love because I do believe she has nothing to get from her daughter. And the scene where, you know, the, the kind of almost again cliche scene of like, can I see her? Like when she goes to try to pick her up at school later in the film after she's been kind of destroyed 
and her, her wife takes her and she's like, just don't do this. Like you see what she actually cares about because that does not feel power to me. If the wife, if the mom hadn't been there, she wanted to see her daughter. She wanted that connection. I do believe that is her human. So I want to reserve this as we get further and further in the film and get towards the end. But I view that differently than the way you do too, because is it about her holding on to something she loves or something that's normal to her and something that she kind of built as part of like her of, persona yeah. to where it's like, I'm this of powerful composer. Yeah. Like I have this daughter, I have this lesbian powerful partner. Lesbian, yeah. yeah. Like it's just, is that part of the whole construct of Lydia Tarr? And, well, and I think the question. you can argue because in the end, you find her literally like spoiler alert for anyone who hasn't seen Tar, and I don't know why you'd be listening to this if you haven't watched it yet. But you find her reclaiming her love of music in a foreign country, and then composing for a bunch of fucking video game nerds cosplaying like in the audience. But to her, it's still just as passionate as it was when she's doing traditional classical music at like the highest level and doing interviews for the New Yorker. It's about like for her, the art is always the end game human connection. Not so much. It's interesting. And again, that's why I love this film. I interpret the ending completely differently and we could do in a wait till we get to that, that yeah. part. But like I, when we get to that, I have a different, but, but again, I think we said it was in the bedroom and with little children it's about what you bring to the film when you watch it. It really sure. is because you and I, I respect your opinion. I, I, you know, you respect mine. It's like we both came and we both have very different sensibilities when it comes to sentimentality and, and narratives. And so like I'm coming from a different perspective and you are. I was genuinely not surprised that you love this movie to the degree <laughs> that you do, but it felt way more while I was watching it like a me movie than it was a you movie. Because it's so stylistic, it's so cold, it's so cerebral, it's so detached. I was like, oh yeah, this is this plays all to my idiosyncrasies. While Martin might be like, I don't know, this is a little long. But you know, and I remember you texted me because you'd already seen it, and you said, I mean, you said, I, I said, just tell me what do you think. You're like, I love it. I don't want to say much more. Interested to see what you think. So I was like, all right. When I said that, I was like, okay, he thinks I'm going to go one or two ways, which is true, you know? Um, and while my default setting is for, I really love American perfect scripts, you know, you know, I don't love, I don't always love messy. I love, you know, a perfect script that's more plot, less character. I was going to say, you're a big narrative guy where I don't give a fuck about any yeah. of that. And I'm, I'm a, like, I, my writing partner, Yvonne, for scripts, like, we both, like, are complete just nerds for narrative structure. Like, it just, it gets me excited. It's like, it would be like LA Confidential where it's like a Swiss watch of like, oh my God, everything is so perfectly done. This, though, reminds me of my one of my favorite living filmmakers is Haneke, who's very messy. And he's, you know, he has a Swiss watch mentality with his, his attack, intention to detail and the way he films, but he's very brave with the kind of stories that he tells, you know, and this felt similar to that. So I think I also just like the right place to see this in my mind and where I am in my life, where I was like, I found it really just like a great character study too, of just like, peeling back the layers of this woman and her pretensions and her civil, her civilized nature and getting to like the core of, of what makes her tick. Well, and that's the thing is that we do 
through all of these different interactions for like almost the first hour of the movie, we kind of watch her navigate this incredibly constructed world of privilege that we, again, like in the bedrooms, kind of small main fishing community and like suburbia, like the, the, imagined suburbia of little children like we couldn't be a part of like we definitely could not be included in this world of like high-powered classical music composers but i also feel like that's what makes it so interesting is because going back to that same interview that he did with sean fennessy is that he talked about like not only did i have to do it in this world that's kind of like shut off from everybody else and show how like this sort of political maneuvering affects even these cultures. He was like, I had to make it a woman and she had to be a lesbian because again, he's like your Haneke comparison. One of the things about Haneke is that he's confrontational. Like he is provoking you and he is purposefully saying like, okay, this is a movie about Me Too and cancel culture and how those two things overlap. And it's going to more or less be a mirror to yourself and say, like, what do you think? Do you th- think that this person's horrible? Should they never be allowed to compose music again? Should they not be allowed to have a family or a career or anything? Like, what did they do? What transgressions yes. are you allowed to basically perform before everything's taken away from you. And like, that's the thing. Do you think I'm just going to make it hard on you since you like this movie? I mean, we both love this movie. Yeah. But you, you're so high on it. Do you think Lydia Tarr is a monster? No. Go on. Cause I do. Um, I think, I mean, she's complex, right? Obviously, she's a complex person. I think the scene... Complicated. Yeah. The scene that kind of opens it up for me, I was, I was talking to my friend, uh, our buddy Daniel, who came for the um, the marathon, um, who's a, a avid film viewer and a really sharp mind on movies. And we were just kind of chatting about it. He saw it before me, and I was just messaging. I said, dude, that blew me away. And we were talking about the sub- suburbia connection of little children to her upbringing, you know, you had again, this class idea of, you see where Lydia came from. But that's kind of a twist in the movie. Almost. Is that he even makes one of the great exchanges in the, the film is what does he call her? What's her, her mom's name? Her name is Linda, Linda. And he's like, mom oh, said yeah, you'd be is home. it, is it, uh, or is it Lydia? I can't remember what I, I think that's the moment that I think her watching like Leonard Bernstein, these videos of like, you see why she fell in love with music, right? You see like what got her in and she's genuinely crying by herself in this room that I think, I think we peel away again, these layers and see at her core. We see her as a child. We see where it started. And if we're talking about Todd field, you know, we we're talking about causality. We're talking about choices made, right? You were talking about that with little children. We're talking about that within the bedroom of all these choices we make to get to the place we are she has gotten to a monstrous place. Like she has gotten, but I think it started someplace pure. Um, so you think she ends a monster? I think she's been, I, I, 
maybe. Because um, that's the thing is that, like... I mean, where she's at at the end, you're right. She is pretty fucking horrible. Yeah. But what's interesting is that you also get into causality of how she's caught. You know, it's like all these choices she makes of if she had only not tried to uh, sleep with... If she had not tried to sleep with... Her protege. Her pro, uh, no, her oh, the, the, the cellist. If she had not tried to sleep well, with... Well, the, the protege before, well, yeah. that's the major, like, turning point of the movie. That That is the core. That is the core of, like, the secret. If this secret is released, that she had slept with the protege, had ignored her, and then destroyed her future, because she's like, I don't want her anywhere. It basically emailed every single every single conductor and said, don't take her. That was the original sin, right? That was the horrible thing she did. Right. And that would not have been revealed if she had made, if she had not continued to be a horrible person, right? Because she continues to one again, sleep with a younger woman who she has power over. Do you think they slept together with the, the, the The cellist? No. They didn't. I do not think so because I think the cellist from the beginning understands the situation. She isn't. She is in power from the beginning. The way that she performs and acts, that opening scene, or the, when they meet for lunch, and she's eating. And she refuses so slop- to take the cucumber salad. Cucumber, like, she's eating sloppily. She's eating meat and like and like bread and like really enjoying the food. And I think going to New York. Well, it's kind it, of a class thing again. Like he likes to kind of throw in there to where this is just this girl who literally is like I just like playing the cello and like if it yeah. affords me these fa- like fancy meals like I'm good with it and she understands that and I think that she's I think she's playing Lydia the entire time I think her coming wet you have a towel she, yeah. it's, it's, a, it's a seduction thing and so Lydia and then when they get to New York you think Lydia has the power she goes oh when do we have dinner she's like I'm tired I go to sleep and then her seeing her go downstairs to meet that boy she met at the the book reading you know, I think that we, if Lydia had not, con- that decision, plus she realized that by making that decision, she could not also uh, promote her her assistant. She couldn't have two, basically. I think that, that's the way I interpret it. It's a Sophie's it. choice. It's a Sophie's choice. Scenario. And so when she says no to her, that woman has all the information on the original sin. Well, she's the one who blows it open. That's what I was going to say is one of the greatest lessons to take away from this is that if you have a person who basically keeps all your secrets from you or for you, don't fuck that person over. Do not. They will just bury you six feet deep. And it, you know, and it is, it again, it's, it kind of reminds me of, I remember when the, um, the early, you were, we were in this kitchen in my apartment the early decision was was leaked about Roe versus Wade being overturned, and the right was all about who leaked it. It was the energy was put on. Oh, can you believe they leaked this? It's like, no, the thing is horrible. What you're all gonna do is fucking terrible. It's not the fact that someone leaked it. They focused on that, and this film kind of gets into that as well. Of like her being angry about who who's talking, who's getting this information out, versus like. No, you did a really horrible thing. Well, I think that's the most damning part of the movie and the part that makes me think she's the biggest monster is that like... I'm I'm talking myself into agreeing with you, basically. (laughs) Field lets you know just enough to be skeptical of her moral integrity. Let's say you see her deleting all the emails. 
through that amazing shot that's almost like through the screen looking at her the yeah. one point and then her Sam Raimi shot oh god yeah it's so good <laughs> I just watched Evil Dead too so you get that like within the clock shit yeah but you watch her deleting all the emails you watch her assistant uh, Naomi Malant who is incredible in this oh yeah like the silent kind of uh, backbone to the whole film like you see her chewing off people a lot of the time and then also one of the great things about this to bring it back to in the bedroom and little children, like we said, the whole voyeuristic part of it is that like, there's always someone with a cell phone, like filming her and cachet to never know who it is. Yep. And like, even in the Juilliard scene, which we haven't even gotten to yet, which is really like when this gets to Oscar season That's and Blanchett is up for the Academy Awards, she's going to be, she's probably going to win it for this movie. She just so fucking good in it it's it's unspeakable really um you watch that whole juilliard scene where she goes to teach and she dresses down a self-described bipoc pan gender pansexual uh, binary binary every like adjective you could possibly like you could possibly apply to a person who sees themselves as, as she, like a as very she, progressive yeah. leftist. As she would see it a like the woke descriptors. Yeah, as, the as woke, Lydia, as Lydia quote would unquote, say, quote, descriptors. Yeah. Is that because the entire conversation is about Bach, and the the they the BIPOC person is like, well, I don't like subscribe to Bach. I prefer like atonal music, also because Bach is a misogynist, and that just ignites. Lydia's rage and she slowly like in very methodical and frankly a fashion that reminds me of Tom Wilkinson in in the bedroom how like his monologue changes over and over during that argument scene is that this is one of the most technical like virtuoso scenes of the entire year maybe the most impressive I've seen because it's all done almost entirely in one take and you watch her just dismantle this person and then but but also again, be kind of charming and be funny be for charming, moments funny but also make you watch it and go did she step over the line did she go too far here like what where is the line where do you stop with a person like this who because as a she might be a gay person she might be a woman but like she's still a white cisgender cisgender woman. And again, he's, he's purposefully bringing all that to the forefront of your brain as you're watching this. And you go, what is she allowed to do here? What is like the point of her dressing this person down? Conversely, why is this person angry? Because like he, they go off on Bach as a misogynist, but their last line is, Fuck you, you bitch. You're, a, you're a fucking out. bitch. You're a fucking bitch yeah. as they walk out. But one of the greatest things about that scene is that as you're watching it, you can see the person filming in the top row oh, I didn't with see an it. iPhone. When you watch it again and you do all the long takes, look to the very back row, you see the person filming it. That'll come back when that video is edited and is leaked and essentially is part of the part that like, cancels her is like the evidence when well, the opening shot too yeah and the opening is, is, shot is someone and i think it's her assistant yeah it has to be because she's on a plane with her maybe oh, her son, or another woman she's with and you you see it though you see that person in the top row and you're like 
you're waiting for this to come back, but that's the the harbinger of doom. That's the the cannery from in the bedroom is that there's always a cell phone out. There's always somebody watching. We're always like observing from this vantage point. And it's like Todd Field commenting on social media and the notion of quote unquote cancel culture and when that in like intersects with me too like impropriety like i've seen somebody describe this movie as she too which is pretty clever in my brain but like again it allows you to piece together all those things who are as you're in these rooms with these people and make your own decision about those moments. But then it also puts you behind the scenes and even into Lydia's dreams with all those Polanski-esque dream sequences of her. Like, cause that's the big thing is that like you watch her, she gets in this argument with the student. She goes and more or less like tosses off Mark Strong. Who's like a fundraiser slash like wannabe composer in that world. His, his father, I think is the like, owns all the money yeah like he goes to the grants and so he he's has almost a, like the richard strout of this yes this world where it's like my father's the rich and powerful one she has I'm to kind of kiss the ring a little bit yeah she yeah. kisses the ring just enough but it's almost like she you can tell that like the lunch scene that she has with mark strong is just like a total formality the yeah. entire time and then she's going through but you watch her just abuse her power in these weird little ways like even again in her personal life where like she finds out her kids being bullied and she literally goes to the school and threatens the fucking child like the boogeyman she's like if you do this again i will get you and you're like oh my god it's what jackie earl haley says when he's jerking off in front of the playground that's true i mean i'm saying like it's better not tell you better not tell but it's like i mean it is a monstrous that is a monstrous for both for us from both movies yeah i'm not making a flippant remark it's like that very but you know i think the difference is in little children their sympathy for the monster to where like i'm not necessarily sure if todd field likes lydia tar i think he's interested in her and fascinated by her obviously you would have to be to make a three-hour fucking more or less biopic about her but it's like do you like her i don't think he cares about that i think i think that's fair and it's really you know this is one of those podcast where we both realize that we have a lot in common where you'll message something that you underlined and I'll be like, I wrote the exact same note, you know? And, and it was funny cause we both talked about Barry Lyndon, but with different perspectives and you talked about it with little children with the kind of detached narration. And I wrote down Barry Lyndon, like in all caps when I was watching tar, because another film about a person, when you find out rising above their station, Playing acting in gentility, a and whole you f- constructed identity, and you find out underneath that they're a, they're a, basically a primal piece of shit. And I think specifically about the scene where she's playing the accordion um, after her neighbor dies, and her neighbors are I, I, one of my favorite scenes in the movie is they her her na- old woman neighbor dies, the the sisters and the the in laws the family come to knock on her door, and they say. Hey, you know, we're the, the children of your neighbor. Oh, I'm, and she's like doing the bullshit. I'm so sorry. Um, we've heard you play music. And she just assumes, oh, I'm so I'm so glad you enjoyed it. And then they, they say, no, we want to know when you're not going to be playing so we can show the apartment to sell it. 
And you realize that from the outside, all she's doing is making noise. That from outside her world, she is no one. That she is a loud, annoying neighbor. That's all she is when you, when you boil it down. And I love that moment because we're talking about perspective. We're talking about voyeurism and how we see it. We're seeing it from kind of within her world, within her power, her power structure. And I love that jump out. Did she steal her neighbor's paper? Oh, I think so. You think that's what we're alluding to, too? Garen fucking You know what? That's the thing that honestly, like, convicts her of monstrosity in my brain. Where, like, if you take my fucking morning paper, I'll slap you. Yes. But it's like, there's also that great scene. I'm glad that you brought all of those scenes up because, like, I feel like a lot of people kind of leave that out when they're critiquing this movie. Is that, again, yeah, it's almost like, why do we care about this neighbor and like her dying dementia riddled shit stained elderly oh. mother. And that whole scene where Lydia has to go into their apartment and like, she struggles to even pick her up or do anything like She's covered in again. Shit. One yeah. of those moments where you're like, Oh, you're a horrible person because you don't even know how to like relate or interact with other people. Like even in like horrible situations, like usually like a normal person's adrenaline or whatever would yeah. take over and you'd be like, okay, well I got to get this person up and call the police or whatever. She enters it almost like it's a, like she's a bull in a China shop, but she, the bull actually has manners and doesn't want to break anything for the first time. It's like, um, where do I put my hands? What do I do with this? And it's like, just pick the woman up and put her in the seat and call the fucking medics. That's all you have to do. Maybe again, if she had done that, she would have saved that woman's life or at least given her, her, you know, family a few more days with her. But like, you can't take that back just like in the bedroom. <laughs> there's a, there's another, I think, uh, one of the things I really like about field and rewatching these and watching tar for the first time is that he's not afraid to like, be quote unquote obvious. Like he, he doesn't mind an obvious metaphor where it's like, no, I'm going to hit this hard. That's okay. And I think the moment for me is when she goes to the, the spa to the massage parlor, um, is her, the coda you talked about of her. And this is why I disagreed from the ending. It's okay. You know, that the end coda is she has been, you know, now ostracized from her former life. Canceled. Canceled. Um, and, is now she's now in Thailand. I think she's in Bangkok, and um, she is there to. We don't know yet to perform. It's 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 a kept a secret to uh, do some new music, and she's a guest conductor. She's not the main conductor. Yeah, she's, she's already guest conductor. already a step down, and she meets people. And it's very small room, and it's it's awkward, and she is exhausted, and um, she goes to the concierge at her very not nice hotel and says, do you know a good massage parlor now? Or she says, she's, I need a massage, like straight up, not a massage parlor. I need a massage. And he goes, I know the best place writes this note for her. And she goes in, it's actually a very nice place. And she goes into this basically back room. Where there's a glass and it's her pick of girls behind underage girls with numbers and the the madam is saying like take your choice like who do you want and this one girl is just staring at her one girl out of the group is staring at her and it's putting this very just literal thing it's like this is what you've been doing this is what you've been doing underneath all the all the sense of like class and shit is you are 
picking pieces of meat from behind a, a glass and using them that in that way. I'm not sure if did you see Blackbird the Lehane series on Apple TV? No. Um, with uh, Taron Egerton and uh, Paul Walter Hauser uh, about a guy infiltrating jail to um, find out where serial killers hidden the bodies. And there's this amazing connective scene where our main character is a womanizer. He's this like cool guy that we're supposed to love and think is really cool. And then Paul Walter Hauser is a woman killer. And they basically connect the scenes of him realizing that him picking women up in the bar is not far off from the way this guy picked women to murder. And it felt similar to that where it's like, look, you got to look this straight in the face of what you truly are. And that's why I can interpret the ending of this film much more in a dark way of like, this is how far she's fallen. And the kind of comedic sense of it moves out from her conducting to this room of cosplayers. And then becomes and, dubstep and then over the credits. Yeah. So that's why I kind of moving from moving from the scene at the massage parlor feels kind of like P.T. Anderson with the, the low points of like boogie nights of like ending up in a, you know, in a jerking off in front of a guy in a truck. It makes me think of American Gigolo or Plainview beating a preacher to death in yeah, a bowling alley. That, that, that low, that low moment of her seeing what she truly is. Um, that's how I kind of interpret the ending for myself. I just think it's one of those movies that is so about our current times that 10, 20 years from now, we're going to look back. I mean, you and I will probably be dead. (laughs) I'm definitely dead. You might still be alive. But I we're hope gonna, we're both here, buddy. We're going to look back. I don't know if I hope I'm so, well, 59. Yeah, sure. It's okay. But like, we're going to look back and say, what did the 20, you know, late 2010s, early 2020s yeah. kind of feel like? What we were, were we concerned with? Like what was happening in our culture? Like tar is going to be one of the great, this and Halloween ends are going to be the two of the great. It has been two like really awesome movies. Yeah. Cancel culture kind of stories You're right. that, that intertwine in ways that we probably never anticipated. Absolutely. And like two very different, <laughs> two very, very different movies about when Michael Myers shows up in tar, it was really jarring. <laughs> I would love that crossover. Lydia, Lydia versus Michael. Um, no, John it, Carpenter's just in the room. She's like, John, how should I score the scene? I don't give a shit. The greatest thing I saw this week, though, is what if Michael Myers finally spoke and the first thing he said was, my knife. (laughs) (laughs) But no, I I think it he was already dealing with that with little children. He's already dealing with that within the bedroom. And he was very prescient to get to this or it's like with ideas of like Me Too and cancel culture is like, is there a spectrum? You know, is there a spectrum? And he's asking that question. I think a lot of reviewers that I've read don't even want the question asked. And I'm not sure I do either. I'm not trying to hear to be an edgelord or something, but like it's, they're uncomfortable questions. This film is really uncomfortable Yeah, for what it can, what it faces. Yeah. Calm down, Joe Rogan. (laughs) You know, I'm just here to ask questions. (laughs) I'm just asking questions, you know, it does. It does remind me of Magnolia in a weird way. Mm -hmm. That whole uh, intro kind of monologue that John C. Riley has about what sins can we live with? What sins can we forgive? How can we keep going as people like field came of age in the same time that PT Anderson did? I mean, new line. You want to talk about like, yeah. Uh, 
in the bedroom being one of the peak kind of late Miramax movies, one of the great examples of that studios, like kind of output, like little children was kind of maybe the, the last, like when new line and Michael DeLuca were really backing, like kind of great young auteurs and letting them make like whatever movie they wanted to on like a specific budget. Because after that you get Lord of the Rings and everything kind of changes. Well, cause Lord of the Rings is before, but it is that's cause that's a one, but yeah. they, but they, they, I think it's when they, they go together with Warner brothers. Yeah. And that's when they start. Cause now they're doing all the DC stuff. They're co-producers with DC. So they went a completely, well, even the James Wan stuff. too. Yeah, absolutely. Yep. You know, yep. like they just want the total franchise, like, like little, uh, Little children's happening, but also Lord of the Rings is happening in the background behind it. And yeah, it's like, yeah. this is the change that's coming that's going to make, honestly, these types of movies not marketable anymore yeah, and, and not bankable to a studio. And that's really depressing when you think about it. That's the note I'm going to end on here. Yeah. And I'll just say that, you know, I'm a Todd Field fan. And not that I wasn't before, but like, I'm very interested in him. And I think. I think there's an argument that he's the greatest director of his generation. Like, it's him, uh, PTA, and Tarantino for me. The lack of films helps. The fact he has three perfect films, like... But he came back 16 years later. Imagine not throwing a fastball for fucking 16 years, just sitting on the bench, making commercials, basically doing warm-ups for this many years, and then coming back and being like, cracking your neck and being like, Tar! Got it. Yeah, I mean, like, I mean, the Malik com- comparison is just perfect because you go from like days of heaven, like, wow, you're amazing, and he comes back and makes this amazing epic war movie. It's so complex, just as a film. That and is-, is similar in that, like, Tar stylistically is nothing like no. Little Children or In the Bedroom. I mean, they both have the same font. It almost felt like that was t- weird. Like he was trying to do a Todd Field font, like. John Carpenter has his own font too. I was thinking the same thing. <laughs> Where it's like, I was like, oh it. shit, you're you're just really trying to brand yourself or like the Tarantino font or whatever. Yeah. But like Tar is nothing like those movies. It's it is kind of like when a Thin Red Line came out and like you were like, oh, this is Malick, but like this is not the same Malick. Like he's doing a whole new thing. Yep. Absolutely. But anyway, Martin. This was wonderful. Indeed, sir. We got to talk about one of my favorite living filmmakers. I, I had been calling this shot and planning this podcast episode for like months. And then when it came time and we actually both loved this movie, I was so delighted. I was like, oh, my God. I was so worried that it was going to be bad and we weren't going to be able to record. But you know what? It's up there, baby. Yeah. Todd, good to have you back, man. But we're going to come at you next week with uh, some picks from Martin. But you're going to have to stay tuned to find out what they are on Secret Handshake. See you then. Stop.